Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Oh God, It's Hot. I'm Dorian Linsky. Uh, let's meet our panel. Alex Andreu is a commentator. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Um, what did you make of Boris Johnson's final uh, PMQs? Uh, did, did he go out on a high? Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm never lost for words, am I? Um, you, you usually can't shut me up, but I am a little bit lost for words. It was just weird. It was this strange lap of honour, like he'd just won some big prize, like he wasn't the worst prime minister of modern times, like he hadn't just squandered a, a, an 80-seat majority in a 22-point lead because basically he couldn't stop having parties. Like, you know, his own MPs hadn't just thrown him out. Like, he's not the only prime minister to, to have... Um, committed a criminal offence in office. And he just did this weird lap of honour being given a standing ovation by the very same party yeah. that just dethroned him. His, his sort of little speech reminded me a bit of the, the Alan Partridge quote about where he goes, people forget that the uh, before it hit the iceberg, Titanic had several days <laughs> of trouble-free luxury sailing. <laughs> Can I just say, even his final sign-off, it, it just... It annoyed me so immensely because yeah. even that is sort of, it was misstressed in a weird way. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> <laughs> even that lacks the, the cultural frame of reference that should have been there. Uh, inevitable part of his farewell tour is a long list of potential new Tory peers, including the Daily Mail's Paul Dacre and Churchill historian Andrew Roberts and allegedly uh, Nadine Doris. Is this is this a tenable part of of British democracy that, that that people on the way out, no matter why they are on the way out, can just stuff the upper house um, with their mates? Well, it's interesting because he was asked a question about that by friend of the podcast, actually uh, Bill Nicholson, who's who's been on a couple of times, um, and his framing of it was very, very interesting because he said people who have served this government faithfully deserve recognition. And I just thought, that's not what peerages are for. That's just constitutionally literate also, it's to see them as a sort of award for people who have been loyal to Well, it's you. Paul Dacre. Is he saying that Paul Dacre has served this government loyally? I, I mean, you're not going to say the, the quiet part out loud. All, all of it is is weird because, you know, your men in this kind of bicameral setup, you're meant to stuff the upper chamber with experts in things. It's yeah, not yeah. meant to be for your mates that stood by you and then find a sort of ex post facto justification yeah. of why Claire Fox deserves a place in the Lords, for fuck's sake. Um, Arthur Snell is a former diplomat and host of Doomsday Watch, the podcast that talked about the end of the world before it was hip. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Dorian. 
Um, Vladimir Zelensky has just sacked his security chief and Ukraine's top prosecutor and accused over 60 of their officials of actively working with Russia. I mean, this seems um, very bad uh, for Ukraine. Can we take this at, at face value? Do you think all these people have been uh, working with Russia? Well, I th it would be surprising if there weren't some. Um, if you think about the fact that uh, the security services of Ukraine, of course, have their origins as part of the Soviet system, and there has been deep and intense cooperation before the, you know, the breakdowns of recent years, joined up training people who were seconded from one organization to another. And also think about the way that spies get recruited. Some, some people talk about mice. This is the mnemonic, which is uh, money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Now, there are loads of reasons why a Ukrainian would not want to work for the Russians, but some of those reasons might apply for one or two individual Ukrainians. So whilst it's it's rather disturbing, it's not necessarily very surprising. Yikes. Um, our guest this week is the former comment editor of The Independent, now a columnist for The Independent and freelance writer, Hannah Fern. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, the long-awaited Ford report into Labour Party shenanigans during the Corbyn years has finally dropped. Um, but given how the media used to lap up Labour drama, it's got very little attention. Do you think this is just that the Tory leadership and the heat wave are hogging all the headlines at the moment? Or, or is there something else that if it had dropped outside of this period, it still wouldn't, you know, be getting attention? I do think there's an element of, you know, what kind of news day does this arrive on? It is unprecedented uh, amount of real news around at the moment. But there's also the fact that um, it does look backwards. Corbyn feels a very long way away to mm. most ordinary people. So news editors making those decisions understand that. Actually, there just isn't the general public interest in this. But I think there should be, um, mainly because if you look at the reactions on Twitter, uh, how this has been digested by both sides of the, yeah. the argument, um, you can see that the, the factions that it describes are absolutely riven through the Labour Party still. Um, I think it tells us something really interesting that if they had been successful in 2019, it would have been an absolute disaster for Labour. Um, they were not a party ready to govern. And it raises the question with the discussions ongoing uh, now whether they still are, if they're still completely splintered uh, in that way. Well, the reactions online seem to confirm exactly what the report describes. Um, Absolutely. Uh, they've obviously read it and thought, this can't mean me. Um, so this, but this vicious circle of factional hostility and paranoia with each camp deeming the other illegitimate and because the other people are so awful, they have to behave in an awful way and so on and so on. I just want to quote one bit. Um, it seems to us that a willingness to see the good in people, even with whom we disagree, and to believe in the potential of people to learn and change is foundational to all successful progressive movements. One of the tragedies of this period for the party is that so many have lost sight of the humanity of those who they see as being in an opposing faction, which is perhaps easier than ever in an age where so much of our communication takes place at arm's length through a screen. Now, this is obviously basically describes all of politics now. Um, can Labour avoid this happening again? Well, I think, it's as you say, it's not just can Labour avoid it happening, it's the Conservative Party, it's anyone involved in modern politics. But I think if you look at the, the, way, the way that's played out in the report, that, that almost that quote you described, is the way that um, it's very clear that anti-Semitism was used as a football by, by both sides. I find that really upsetting. Mm. If you think about what that, what that means on a really basic level, and we, we all accept that that is being played out across all issues around minorities, around um, you know poverty, 
racism is, is just one part of it. I think it's really frightening. When you read that, that quote out, everyone's just nodding along because it feels like it's just, it describes exactly where we stand as a, as, as a nation politically. Because, I mean, I don't want to say that sort of racism and misogyny didn't play a part in, in what some of the um, party officials were saying about Diane Abbott, Carrie Murphy. But what sprang out more than that, because there was no explicit, you know, racism, was, was just the contempt. Like racist or not, the the, the dehumanising way. Yes, dehumanising of anybody who doesn't happen to share the very specific um, perspective you hold on the world. Um, you know, Brexit's the obvious one to talk about. There, that's how uh, we ended up with an almost fifty-fifty vote. Mm. Um, it's that sense of it's us versus them on everything. I think it's really troubling. Of course, it's not just happening here. We can see it in America. Yeah. You can see it actually elsewhere in, in Europe. It's uh, it Has social media led us here? I'm not sure, but it certainly plays to our basest desires to, um, you know, objectify others and uh, and distance them. It's really worrying. I mean, I appreciate that the summer holidays are coming up and most people probably do not want to read the Ford Report, but it is available to read um, and (laughs) it is well worth reading if you've seen various factions claiming that they are completely vindicated um, because uh, the TLDR version is that nobody is vindicated. Yeah, everyone comes out of it looking pretty bad. Terrible, except for uh, Martin Ford, actually, (laughs) who I think has done, um, done a good job. This week on the show, the Tory leadership race continues because we've been bad and we deserve to be punished. Either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss will be the next Prime Minister. We break down the choice facing Tory members and discuss what the debates taught us about the state of the party. Plus, we speak to Arthur about his new book, How Britain Broke the World. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, temperatures hit record highs on Monday and Tuesday. How have the British public and press been reacting to the historic heat wave? First this week, in the last half hour before we recorded, the question of who will be ruining the country for the next two years has come down to its final two contenders. Tom Tugendhat was eliminated on Monday, Kemi Badenoch on Tuesday, and now Penny Mordaunt. That leaves Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, a pair of woke socialist remainers, if you believe their opponents. Also today, inflation rose to 9.4%. Alex, how did a crowded, unpredictable race you know, so unpredictable that I was listening to a podcast, a rival podcast uh, that came out a week ago and almost everything in it is wrong, <laughs> turned out to be wrong. And I'm not knocking them. That's what it's been like. So how did it end up producing the same two front runners that we were talking about six months ago and then ended up talking about how they were possibly no longer the front runners because of all these bad things that happened and yet here they are? Um, because it employed... Precisely the same process and the same selectorate that the last two times have. If you diagnose a party as suffering from a sort of lack of energy, a lack of new ideas, a lack of new thinking, um, to give those same people for a third time the choice for leader and expect them to produce something different from the last two times seems to me a bit of a tall order, basically. How did support for the eliminated candidates shake out? Was it was it as expected? Because Mordaunt was quite close in third. Were there any surprises? Well, I mean, Sunak's share of the vote jumped up a little bit more than I would have expected. And I have to say that Mordaunt got a few more votes than I expected in the last couple of rounds. I mean, it seems to me Sunak, I think despite the polling that shows him losing to either Mordant or Truss. 
I think he will win very comfortably against Truss. Really? I'm making that prediction today. It, yes, because she's an idiot. She is an idiot. Yeah. Um, is there any... She, she's the opposite of a quick thinker. I've never seen anything like it in my life. But she's asked a, a question and she's one of those people that you can see nothing happens for about three seconds and then some process begins to fire, which is a process of recall rather than thought. And that is incredibly clear to me. She's remembering what she's learned by rote rather right. than thinking. Well, wasn't there that clip of her being asked if there was a single foreign leader whom she called out on human rights. I think it's in a select committee she, hearing. She was in a select committee, yeah. yeah. And, she's and, just, and, and she's just like, like oh, yeah, well, yeah. I've called them out loads. And it's like, name one. And she's like, well, I, I'll have to get back to you. Yeah. And it's like, it was obviously a very memorable exchange when you called out uh, a foreign leader of human rights. You know, yeah. you think that would be a big deal. That would stick in my head. But no. No. Um. Hannah, after two debates with an even worse final five than, than The Apprentice, they pulled out of the third debate for Sky News. And now Labour are obviously using clips from the debates in a, a clever attack ad. So in hindsight, were they a, a terrible mistake for the Tories, but very useful for the rest of us? Absolutely a terrible mistake. And what was the point of them at all? You know, this isn't a, a contest that the general public has any um, chance to participate in. It's frustrating to watch when you can't then be engaged in it in a meaningful way. Um, and all they did was expose their weaknesses one by one. Um, embarrassing, certainly, but I think... Um, Sunak and Truss were absolutely right to make that call. Probably they realised that they were in the worst position if they carried on because they are the kind of boring continuity candidates in a way. Whoever wins um, will have a period of time in which to embed themselves as prime minister um, and they should be, they should, I think they realised they should be using that period to sell themselves, not going, uh, you know, too you, early. You to could the almost like splice it with clips from the thick of it, couldn't you? The debates of... People watching back in conservative mm. headquarters going, oh, what's going <laughs> Don't call her a socialist. Um, well, one of the people, you know, the people that were more likely to benefit from the debates was assumed was the, the more sort of up and coming candidates. What happened to Penny Morden's momentum? Um, I mean, it's quite extraordinary seeing the, I think, was it three Daily Mail covers in a row about what a kind of woke liar she was um like what, what happened there was she brought down or did she trip over her own shoelaces i do think she fell at the last hurdle she'd run what you might describe as quite a clean campaign up until i think today was it this morning where she initially was just standing for what she stands for and you may fundamentally disagree with virtually everything she says and also and, she seems a bit of an idiot and sometimes she so fundamentally other... disagreed with things that she said earlier <laughs> exactly <laughs> but i think the panic must have set in this morning when she just uh, just did an absolute hit and run on on both of um, the you know the, the primary um, what do you call them I suppose the front runners and and embarrassing for her so she I, I do think that probably played a part in the final decision today. Yeah, what did she do at the last minute then? What, what she just did a basically a, a huge attack, really dirty. Um, they will destroy this Conservative Party. She said of both of, of, of Sunak and Truss, they will destroy your party. They will destroy your country. Don't don't trust them. And and as a result, and I then deleted she, it, didn't she? Yes, but I think it was it was a moment. I think it was it was widely seen. Yeah, yeah. All the press ran ran it. Um, you know, it was the primary story this morning as we ran up to the vote. So I think she did. 
really screwed up for herself at the last moment. You, you don't think it was her pledge to um, to commission a new, a new theme, song. It could have been a that. new theme for the UK. <laughs> What's um, the old theme for the UK? Well, seriously, what is the UK theme it's, now? It's Vindaloo by Fat Les. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and you can't you can't improve on that. Fat Les couldn't improve on it. So what chance does Penny Morden? I genuinely Morden watched players? that interview. She was like, "This may sound trivial, but it's like, no, it is trivial." <laughs> it was really very much not the sort of thing you say when inflation hits nine point four percent. This may sound trivial when the London Fibre Group has their business day since World War Two. But well, I'm just going to have a chat about a song. Bear with me. Wouldn't this cheer us up? Um, while our houses are burning down. Um, Arthur, foreign policy barely figured, although Tom Tugendhat did coyly reveal that he used to be in the army. Uh, do you think foreign policy will remain fairly consistent, even you know, from whoever wins and relative to Johnson? You know, Brexit and Ukraine being the main issues, there doesn't seem to be any major disagreement on those things. I think definitely. Um, and weirdly... Uh, Obviously, on Ukraine, and I've said this before, I don't think uh, certainly any of the conservative leaders would have taken a different approach. Uh, and you can see it, it's it's a good policy, but it's also one that that is good for them. So there's no reason to expect it would change. Weirdly, with Brexit, uh, Liz Truss, I mean, you know, she's the author of the particularly infamous rewrite on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it's particularly hardline because of her Remainer background. But there's this very strange dynamic where Rishi Sunak, who's been anti-Europe since his school days, if anyone can be bothered, you can read some turgid thing he wrote at Winchester College about how ghastly the EU is. Um, but he's somehow being sort of portrayed as the Remainer in this in this uh, weird um, leadership struggle. So he's going to have to be fall over himself to be uh, behave stupidly with the EU. So I think, sadly... Both candidates, for reasons that are all about the internal dynamics of the Tory party, are probably going to want to be uh, even less constructive with Europe than was Boris Johnson. I thought another one of Penny Mordaunt's uh, great little sort of gifts for Labour was her promise to redo Brexit. <laughs> and it was like, Brexit was done, we're going to redo yeah, it. Yeah, I'm all for that if she wants to redo it in a way where we don't do it. But maybe that, that, <laughs> that might not have been what she had in mind. No. COP26 President Alok Sharma put pressure on them all to commit to net zero by, by 2050. Um, Kemi Badenoch, I got very confused because I saw that she'd done a U-turn, having been very anti-it, and then she'd come round to it. But then apparently she'd done another U-turn, and then now she wanted to kick it into... Does that become an S-turn uh, at that point? I don't really... I think she was basically like, after, maybe after seeing London on fire, she was just like, oh, fuck it. <laughs> just let it let it all burn. Um, they all seem to sort of int they all seem the, the, the survivors have sort of signed up for it, but in a quite a soft way. And Sunak wants to retain the ban on onshore wind farms because they're they're annoying and unsightly. Apparently, do you think either of them, or indeed even if you include Morden or any of those, like actually care? Are these people that would sort of you know go to the wall, take a political hit uh, for climate issues? Well, they're certainly not going to take a political hit during the leadership campaign. I think it's it's possible to believe that uh, once they've, whichever one, you know, proves the most attractive to the ageing white men who don't believe in climate change, who are the, you know, the selectorate, uh, I think it's possible to believe that both Sunak and Truss are capable 
of a sort of reality-based approach on climate change. And I would have thought, given you know the days we've just been through, uh, that actually you know if you're trying to uh, return to something a bit closer to the centre ground in order to see off the threat from the Labour Party at, at the next election, that going in saying that you know we can't afford to change our behaviour and and it's somebody else's problem, I would have thought that's not going to be very useful to them. So I think it's this weird phenomenon. It's a bit like what you see with the US primaries, where you have to tack to the far right to get selected as the candidate you know, with the Republicans or the Conservative Party. And then you try and tack back to the centre because normal human beings need your vote or you, you, you need their vote, sorry. So, so it, you know, they sort of swing around a bit. Um, Alex, why notice in the debate, if you did it, maybe if you did like a word cloud, um, that they all talked about restoring honesty and trust mm-hmm. uh, to the government while Morden said that politics was broken. How will they track down the culprits? <laughs> um, it'll be tough. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's extraordinary that they self-diagnosed that the problem was they needed radical change and have ended up with the two people most closely associated with the shit show of the last three years, most complicit in it. One of whom was fined and for Partygate. And I mean, so, yeah, yeah. It'll but it's be... fear driving that, isn't it? It's fear that they're going to lose so overwhelmingly at the next election, that they just want to hang on to whatever residual favour there might have been from 2019, that they think that perhaps the, the general public don't feel quite so appalled by Boris as, you know... There's a, there's a sweet <laughs> spot. There's a sweet spot, isn't there? And, and the, that is a danger for Labour, where someone comes in and sort of just says enough of the right things and presents themselves in a in a decent enough way, but can credibly claim they haven't had time to do any of it where their polling recovers. But that's it. It's a really narrow window. Like, before that, you're just being judged by what's happened so far. After that, you're being judged by failure to deliver. And there's a really narrow path to a, a possible victory. But I think both of them must be looking at the long term, right? Both of them must have priced in the likelihood of losing the next election, but maybe then going on to reform the the party in their image in some way. Well, I'm not sure that can be true about Sunak. I do actually agree with you that Sunak uh, will probably win. Um, I think he'll oh, edge that's it. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I thought I was going to be the controversial <laughs> commentator saying that because I think he will edge it because of this this fear factor among those kind of die-hard, um, you know, members who really, really hate Labour and hate everything that mm. they stand for under the kind of wokeism and so on. I think they're so worried about that that they want to elect somebody who is more likely <clears throat> to be palatable nationally. And don't forget, people still associate Sunak with furlough. Furlough was very attractive. Mm. People were very pleased that the government stepped in at a moment of true individual crisis. They've been the most popular. Absolutely. And I think he he probably knows that he could build on that. We associate him with Boris because he was Boris's chancellor. But he's not (laughs) so associated with with the kind of the partying and the um, the revelry, the, the, the I don't know, the kind of moral failings of mm. Boris. No, he, he seemed he seemed to be quite an unwilling participant in many ways, didn't he? Um, I just want to share my 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 new theory, my new culture war theory here right. about why actually this anti-work stuff isn't working. 
very well Go on. and why I don't think it will work is that what I think they've misunderstood, I think they're too online, the anti-woke people. I think what they've done is they've conflated old-fashioned social conservatism, which was meant to be part of the kind of, you know, the, the sort of post-liberal red Tory idea, you know yeah. what I mean? More spending, but very socially conservative. With the language and priorities of online anti-wokeness. So mm. out there, there's lots of people that might be very conservative about immigration. They actually don't really know what the word woke means. You know, they don't think that universities are being infiltrated by the beliefs of uh, Herbert Marcuse and uh, Michel Foucault. Uh, they, they've never heard of cultural Marxism. And, and that actually a lot of the sort of buttons that people like Kemi Badenoch were pressing, um, they actually don't... Are not connected to anything. No. <laughs> the, 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 the wires aren't connected. So I think that, that I think that, I think it's a fundamental category error. But we shall see. But this is this is my sort of feeling. Mm. I, I absolutely agree. I think all of politics is too online at the moment. They're taking far too much feedback from what they see on Twitter and not from, you know, general uh, polling data and so on. Um, but also they, they, they're misunderstanding this kind of woke, anti-woke vibe as well. So there's all the discussion. When you look at the trans rights issue, there's all of this discussion, discussion about what they call the radicalization of Mumsnet and so on. If you look at those individuals who... Um, who are described as gender critical. I think that's the kind of the term that's used. Most of those are actually still probably going to vote Labour over other strong issues they believe you know, they mean a lot that's to them, true, such as true. abortion and so yeah, yeah. on. So the idea that that whole, there may be some switches, but I think the idea that you're making any kind of policy based on a few people chatting about one very yeah. specific issue online is bonkers. That and, was, and that kind of leaves us, that describes where we are. That's one good thing Johnson did say in his final speech was he was like, get off Twitter. I think he said something like, you know. He did. Twitter isn't the real world. So there so we mean, go. get off Twitter because that's where you can find out about the latest ter <laughs> terrible thing. You don't want to see I've photos done. of me. Of <laughs> but, but what's um, interesting is that, that actually social media was instrumental in bringing yeah. Johnson down. Maybe that. So he's wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, another thing that struck me that came out of the rhetoric of the debate is that, his, that Johnson's main asset, I think, probably was this sort of bumptious optimism. It's like things are going to be great. That was how he sold Brexit. But the candidates, and this was particularly true of Badenoch, but the others too, it was all about tough choices and difficult mm, times mm. ahead. Did it, did any of them actually have an appealing, not saying that you should, you, you should therefore go for Johnsonian bullshit and cakeism, but did any of them have an appealing vision of the future, apart from saying growth a lot? I think we've circled back basically to 2010. That's what it feels like. We've circled back fully to austerity and those arguments about, you know, living within our means and difficult decisions and all of that. Because I think there was an understanding that while Johnson's optimism, while his boosterism was quite a good strategy for getting elected, there is a sort of relationship with reality that if it veers from reality, by a certain degree, it begins to work against you. Yeah. You know, Sunak, for instance, uh, if he becomes the next prime minister, may be a safer pair of hands and sort of better presentationally, more telegenic. He presents Labour with different um, challenges. But at the same time, you know, he's a filthy rich guy that, you know, buys five different loaves of bread so all his kids can have the one they like. And to have someone like that in charge at a time when people are really cannot afford to pay their energy bills, 
that comes with its own problems, well, before, doesn't it? Before we wrap up, I mean, you, you two are both predicting Sunak, but but just say it's not. Um, and I think while it's nice to see a, a young, idealistic, Lib Dem Europhile uh, <laughs> like Liz Truss going on to such great things... I mean, Hannah, do you think such a bad performer would be would be a total gift to Labour and Starmer in particular? Absolute gift. I mean, she basically matches Starmer's worst qualities as a leader and then some. So it will make and none him, of his better ones. Yeah, it will make him look polished uh, and like he has some kind of emotional heart. She is very robotic. <laughs> she really doesn't connect. It's a, it's a fundamental thing in politics that you need to be able to connect with people and make them feel like they're being heard. I can't see her delivery achieving that at all. But at the same time, don't you think she's also quite dangerous because because of all of that, former Lib Dem, former Remainer, I, I just feel like there's a danger she will really tack on to the far right of the party, suffer from this intense imposter syndrome and constantly be trying to prove her anti-European credentials, to prove oh, yeah. her right-wing no, credentials. She could do a lot of fucking Needless to damage. say she'd be terrible, but I'm just saying I don't think she'd be electorally Yeah, I'm terrible. just saying she will yeah. be much more right-wing oh, than yeah. Rishi Sunak, and that's saying something, because we went be... into this three months ago considering Rishi Sunak one of the most right-wing Thatcherite candidates, at least fiscally. Nobody, yeah, I mean, we're going to have a shit prime minister. I mean, and I think he's that's now a, the lefty that's, of that, the, the duo. That, that's a given. <laughs> Um, Hannah, to wrap up, do you expect to see any of the the losers uh, in the next cabinet? Has anyone come out of this having, you know, boosted themselves? No, I think Kemi Badenoch hasn't got a chance. She exposed herself as naive. I know everybody was talking about, um, you know, how refreshing it is to see, um, you know, a woman like her in the contest. And I understand the reasons for that. Um, but she, one of the mistakes she made, I just want to flag up, is it was astonishing. She she talked about how she was, at, you know, in McDonald's earning the minimum wage when she was 16, flipping burgers and so on. And every single part of that was factually incorrect. She was 16 in 1996, I think, um, uh, was calculated, uh, and you know there there was no minimum wage at that time. Um, you know she uh, she talked about her personal tax allowance. She wouldn't have been paying any tax because she would have been under the allowance at that time. You can't just make stuff up that sounds accurate. It's so naive. Mm. Um, so it, I I don't think I don't know if people take a risk. It'd be like if that. we found out that Tom Tugendhat wasn't actually in the army. <laughs> 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 that that I, I would lose all faith. Now, let's take a quick question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This week, Tim Dean asks, uh, and this is like a coda to our discussion, really. We've all been fixated on the group of leadership candidates and ruining the purge that got rid of any Tories with half a brain after Brexit, Grieve, Greening, Gork, and so on. But are there any Tories left on the benches that should have had a shout, and why? In other words, is this really the best they can come up with? Now, I'm going to answer first because my answer is very, very simple. I think this process is cursed. <laughs> and a lot of people with our kind of our sort of frame of mind, more sort of remainery liberal, think if you must have a Tory prime minister, you know, Tom Tugendhat seems like, you know. And, and you know, he was, he was maybe the least worst, but he wasn't very impressive. It was, a, it was not a good format. I, didn't, I don't think, oh, my God, we were, you know, what could have been. And so sometimes, you know, there's a backbencher around whom you have a certain idea that they seem all right. 
But actually, in this process, one, they wouldn't have got through. Two, they wouldn't have come across very well. But I'm prepared to, for people to disagree with me. Hello? So I'm going to slightly um, bend the question. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think that there's somebody who's now in the cabinet who is excellent and hopefully will stay there. So that's Greg Clark now at Leveling Up. Uh, I think he has a fantastic history. When he was um, cities minister, he did absolutely brilliant things around city deals, huge uh, sort of advocate of regeneration <clears throat> and understands how local government works. Um, he's a Remainer, so he's been brought back into the camp. So there's, you know, moderate values on some of those mm. Mm. issues. And he's also just like a decent old-fashioned Tory, i.e. I disagree about how we get to the end goal, but he and I would agree where we're all trying to yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. And so if whoever does succeed keeps him at levelling up rather than put in some ideologue that backs up their worldview, I would be very pleased because that's a department that right. really needs a lot of attention. Uh, so that's that's um, not quite answering the question. No, 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 but it's good to know there's somebody, you know, worth keeping an eye on. Um, Arthur, Greg Clark was literally any... on my list of ones to pick, so I, you know, full endorsement. You actually, oh, you have a list, Arthur. Who else is on your well, list? Well, um, it, it's a pretty short list, um, but uh, <laughs> I think Tracy Crouch is someone uh, it would have been lovely to see a bit more from. She's somebody who, again, is very centrist Tory. She was a minister, in, and in, back in 2018, uh, she resigned over a, a very sort of slippery bit of government policy to do with fixed odd betting terminals, which, of course, play into people who've got terrible gambling addictions. Mm. But she, she's, she's got a lot more going on than that. She's, um, she's, some, she's a cancer survivor. She's, she's got a very sort of uh, ordinary way of dealing with, with kind of major issues that, that, you know, face people. And I think she's somebody who, actually, I think Labour would have a real, real struggle. So as somebody who doesn't want the Tories to win, I'm very happy she didn't run. But I think she's the sort of person that, that they, they probably ought to think about having as their leader if they want to get anywhere. That's great. Thanks, Arthur. What about you, Alex? So, um, yes. So my answer is Sir William Cash. Um, <laughs> because, well, because... I want to wean myself off my addiction to politics. And every time he comes on, uh, you know he's going to settle in for some 20-minute speech about a provision in a 16th century act that actually means the UK owns Normandy. Um, and I just want to set my hair on fire to restore feeling to my head. <laughs> and I think if he became prime minister, he would help me switch off politics altogether. I, I would just go, I don't give a fuck. Just let me know when the next election is. Um, I wouldn't watch any of it. I wouldn't be in this podcast. This Alex, is... what would you do, though? Incredible. Um, what would you do with your time? I would probably devote more time to my aubergines and my tomatoes, <laughs> who are doing very well at the moment. Would one of your aubergines make a good leader of the Conservative <laughs> better, Party? Better leader than Bill Cash, but there we are. That's my answer. That's a very For inappropriate reasons. answer if you're uh, very online. For personal reasons. <laughs> oh, no. Problematic vegetable. Next this week, in 2020, former diplomat Arthur Snell was an early guest on our sister podcast, The Bunker. Two years later, he's the host of Doomsday Watch, the podcast that explores the geopolitical threats of tomorrow and now also covers the war in Ukraine. His new book is How Britain Broke the World, War, Greed and Blunders from Kosovo to Afghanistan, 1997 to 2021. Because it's stopped now, isn't it, Arthur? It's, it's all it's it's stopped over. breaking the world now. 
Um, so congratulations on the book. Um, I'm going to I'm going to challenge you a bit, if that's all right. Great, please do. Um, but firstly, um, you quote this famous uh, line from the U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson from 1962, where he said, "Britain has lost an empire and not yet found a role." Is that still true 60 years later? Is it still looking? Or has it stopped? Is it even stopped looking? Well, I, I think it's truer than ever, um, particularly post Brexit, because we had this thing called Global Britain, and literally nobody can define what Global Britain is. Uh, at one point, Global Britain was, you know, the the buccaneering island nation that would make trade deals with America and India and Australia. And of course, the only one of those that we've done is Australia, and it makes no difference to our economy. And then a war began in Europe, which reminded us that we had to be really joined up with both our friends in Europe, but also we had to work in other multilateral fora and so on. So I think um, we, we definitely haven't found a role. And part of the problem is that, although this is not a book all about Europe, Britain can't seem to deal with the idea that our future as a European country might well be in Europe. But we can't get we can't get comfortable with that role. Um, the book starts with Tony Blair's intervention in Kosovo, um, generally seen as a success at the time, and probably in hindsight, although you 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 disagree with that assessment. Why do you pick that as the point when things started going wrong, as a sort of pre pre nine eleven example? Yeah, well, the basic thing is that. As you say, that in hindsight, most people look at Kosovo and say, you know, we did a good thing and that was a good job. Um, but the problem starts there because it's this idea of intervention guided by the force of our own righteousness, that we know that uh, we we can go and, and, you know, send troops to a certain place. And obviously, we didn't do it on our own. And, and throughout this book, this isn't about things that we've done on our own, but we've we've been a leader in different ways. The Kosovo intervention was, was Tony Blair's intervention. Bill Clinton was really quite frustrated by Blair's insistence on it. And it was at a time when Blair was was undoubtedly, you know, the, the world's sort of preeminent, certainly, you know, in the democratic world, the, the preeminent political leader was at the height of his of his influence. But the difficulty with the Kosovo war is various. One, the fact that we we started this habit of ignoring the United Nations. So the UK, you know, proudly founder member, Security Council member. We love to talk about the rules-based international order, but then we tore it up when it didn't suit us. Uh, the other problem with the Kosovo war is actually that, like many interventions, the complexity of it is such that you, you end up with spillover effects. So the Serbian Kosovars who were um, ethnically cleansed by the Kosovar Albanians after the war, the the you know the organised crime networks that started out, the the other factors that then played into Blair's behaviour over Iraq and Afghanistan. So, like all these things, that uh, you know that everything is connected, and the, the the spillover effects of that early intervention, you know, I felt to this day. But it's because we thought it was, it was a success, we Britain, that we carried on doing this thing. And, and on the question of the UN, I suppose one thing that, that, that I get stuck on when people talk about the need for UN approval is you've got Russia and China on the Security Council. We, we know what their um, priorities are. Russia, in this case, was, was going to veto that because they didn't want to encourage kind of breakaway republics, although now they seem quite keen on breakaway republics as long as they're breaking away from Ukraine. So is it reasonable to always insist on the UN route, you know, fully legal, rules-based international order, when that basically means the say-so of, of Russia and China? 
It's a really difficult question, but I think one thing we have to be careful about is looking at the UN in 2022 and thinking that's the same as the UN in 99. So even as late as 2011, Russia uh, did agree to a UN resolution on Libya, which authorized uh, an intervention there. Now, what ended up happening was that we then overinterpreted that resolution to to uh, uh, defenestrate Gaddafi, and the Russians then, you know, felt that they had been misled. So I think it it might not be correct to say that there was no prospect of any kind of agreement with Russia right. back in '99. But clearly, it would have been very difficult, I and mean, we certainly wouldn't have got their agreement. Uh, to do what we ended up doing. I think, though, it is, it's also the case that if you say you can never do anything without a full uh, UN Security Council resolution, then, of course, that is a, a, a council of despair or a reason to do nothing ever. But I think we, we ought to be a lot more cautious about discarding it, right. which we did over Kosovo, but also over Iraq, notoriously. Now, the Iraq chapter is really interesting, I think, because... You suggest that the U.S. you know could have invaded without Tony Blair's support, but you, but maybe not without certain um, UK intelligence, specifically MI6. Would the neocons not have found the sort of information they needed come hell or high water? It's quite interesting. I found listening to like American podcasts or reading American books about the Iraq War, and they really don't. They really downplay the British role. They're basically like, this is what was going to happen. And actually, they didn't need Tony Blair and they didn't need MI6. But do you think from kind of your, you know, your research and your, your sort of contacts that that was a fundamental part of the, of the Casas Belli? I do. And it's, of course, um, possibly the only way we could answer this question is if, if you've got sort of Bush and Cheney in the room. Rumsfeld has moved to another place. Whether, whether they would tell us exactly what was going on is, is open to question. The reason I ended up with this, this conclusion, which I think a lot of people might find surprising, is there are just certain pointers. You've got George Tenet, the head of the CIA, complaining uh, that he had to rely on British intel to, to make his case. And then you've got the, the big State of the Union speech that George Bush made just before the invasion. And he again cites British intelligence when he's talking about Iraq getting uh, access to uranium, which of course wasn't true, but I mean, he, he's citing it. And so what's really interesting about that is why did he feel the need to bring that in uh, if, you know, if the Americans had the stuff anyway? Well, part of the reason which I, I sort of found from, from looking at this seems to be that what was happening was a lot of the intel American intelligence analysis was saying, well, we're not sure that this is correct. We're not sure, for example, that the Iraqis did try to buy uranium in Africa. So then what they did was they had to turn to the Brits who said, oh, no, we, we, we are sure, you know, we do mm -hmm. have this intel. And of course, the reason we had it was because we weren't applying enough of our own critical analysis to this intelligence. We were letting it through. We became crucial to the American case for war because we were effectively sort of laundering dodgy intelligence that they could then present. You know, another case study being Colin Powell's famous speech to the UN, where he was relying, for example, on a very discredited uh, defector who who provided you know false mm. information on on so-called WMD. I mean, this is the the sort of opposite. I think your book of I suppose the conspiracy theorists' version of foreign policy, um, you know, failures or malfeasance, where everything's pointing in the same direction, and actually the failures are really diverse. And what struck me is you've got in Libya the UK uh, with allies acted too hastily to stop what they thought was a likely massacre. Um, in Syria. 
UK and allies failed to act after an actual massacre. So sort of what connects... They, they, seem to, they seem almost like opposites. What connects yeah. these decisions? And I suppose, is there a through line between all these incidents you're describing in the book, even though they're all very different situations with different outcomes? Yeah, and, and I'm, gl- I'm glad you've picked that up because, you know, in a way, the, the, what this book is not is a book against foreign intervention. Um, and it, because, uh, as you note, you know, in Syria, there was an actual massacre using actual WMD and the world did nothing. And and in my personal view, you know, that that was a, a, a terrible, tragic error. Um, so I think the through line is one, this, uh, we don't like to deal with expertise and, you know, for example, so there, there were plenty of Libya experts who were saying at the time, there's no serious evidence that Gaddafi is going to carry out a massacre in Benghazi. Now, that may or may not then justify or not justify actions taken, but the 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 basis on which we said we acted was to to stop a massacre, which wasn't happening. Whereas I think what was going on in Syria was uh, again we jumped very quickly on this idea that Assad must go, that that you know because that that the Arab Spring was underway, that Hosni Mubarak had stood down in Egypt. It was only a couple of weeks ago, and Bashar al-Assad would be out the door. Whereas mm. in fact. You know, if you'd looked at the history of the way the Assads, part of the Alawite uh, religious sect in Syria, the way that they were incredibly marginalized. And so once they'd got power, they were never going to let go of it. So I think in some of these cases, it's simply a failure of our actually engaging with the realities rather than this rather sort of um, superficial version of it. But the other thing about the Syria case is actually... If you look at the votes in the parliament, you know, the the famous sort of Cameron versus Ed Miliband vote, it was basically, it came down to pure political, party political posturing, the worst kind of sort of Westminster Yabu politics, where each side accused the other of aiding and abetting Assad and Putin, rather than actually thinking, how do we seriously deal with the situation in Syria? Arthur, I've concentrated on um, the chapters about Russia and China. You focus on what you call treasure islands, mm. which are all these overseas territories, yeah. and how closely linked they are to Russian money and how attractive they are to oligarchs. And I found myself not actually knowing whether the current sanctions regime bites in overseas territories in any way. Yeah. Do, do you know the answer to well, that? Well, yeah, it's a really good question. So... Uh, because Britain, you know, with our wonderful unwritten constitution, everything is different depending on which particular island you're talking about. But in most of them, the sanctions are automatically applied there as of law. And in some of them, they have to write them themselves. But the real issue here, I think, is about enforcement. Because if we think of how lax the enforcement of these issues is here in the UK, and even since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's, there's clear evidence that the, the agencies such as the National Crime Agency and so on aren't really in a position to do anything about this dirty Russian money. Well, think how constrained they are in these tiny islands with tiny mm. police forces. They're supposed to be um, you know, dealing with financial crime by some of the most sophisticated, well-resourced people in the world. And we're talking about a little tiny island with the sort of the equivalent of a kind of village constabulary looking after it. 
Mm. Is this a pitch for a, an ITV show? It sounds <laughs> really good. <laughs> it would. That would be... I would watch that. That would be amazing. But money launderers in paradise, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing that... I mean, there were a lot of reminders in the book that kind of stimulated my thinking by making me go, oh, yeah. Um, so you point out how hawkish Thatcher was about Russia in general, Russian money and all of that. When did the conversion happen precisely to the Conservatives being enamoured of oligarchs? Did it happen while they were in power? Did it happen while they were not in power mm. and sort of struggling to redefine themselves? I certainly think, you know, it that in the Blair era, so in, you know, the the obviously you had the end of the Soviet Union, you had the sort of decade of chaos of the 90s, and then Russia started getting pretty rich post 9-11. But also, of course, it became very strategically important as an ally in the war on terror. And, you know, Blair and Brown, they were the ones that opened up this sort of golden visa system that lots of oligarchs availed themselves of. So it, it wasn't a uniquely conservative thing, but I think it played very well into the the sort of mercantilist conservatism where, you know, you, for example, there's David Cameron was very excited about how many uh, Russian companies had listed their shares on the London Stock Exchange. Mm. Uh, and, and it seemed that, you know, he couldn't get his head around the idea that this might be strategically quite awkward. Money has no colour or, or creed, it's just money. And I think that became a very, in a rather sort of, the, the, the modern conservatism is, is possibly a rather empty creed, that it sort of, that, that, that reflected that. And again, the Johnson government was super friendly to China. And, and now we're finding out that has created severe complications and problems, but not as much as we thought. There was a, there was a really orthodox school of thought around the early 2000s that China was going to dominate the world entirely by 2020. I remember reading book after book saying that this was inevitable, it was going to happen. And I just wonder whether that played into what you call the kowtow policy that, that basically was prevalent in the, in the West until really quite recently. Yeah, I, I think it may well have. But the other factor to consider is actually the incredibly effective activity of China itself in in its own, you know, uh, influence operations. And it's funny because most people are very focused on the way Russia likes to sort of influence uh, particularly mm. democratic countries. But until recently, people haven't thought very hard about China. But its influence on university departments, on research funding, on politicians... It's, it's all over the place. And of course, some of that influence might be quite positive. You know, it, it, it's clearly a great civilization with, with you know, extraordinary history and so on. Uh, but I think another factor is perhaps the books you've read, Alex, you know, that, that they clearly haven't been borne out, certainly by now, by 2020. But actually, we're looking at a world in this incredibly difficult economic uh, climate. And part of what we're looking at is a world where you don't have China making all your consumer goods and shipping them to you really cheap. Mm, you know, that's mm. one of the things that has kept inflation yeah, yeah. down all these years. So I think we may, you know, the timing might be a bit off, but in terms of the impact of, of, of this, you know, this great decoupling from China that is just starting now, uh, that, that may drive sort of economic issues in, in, in the coming decade. Finally, Arthur, I want to finish on, as you do in the book, on the structural issues. Um, and you describe this loss of expertise, the shrinking of the diplomatic corps in particular, and a loss of interest in getting Brits into top jobs in international organisations. All of which makes me wonder whether, on some level, 
we've just given up doing what it takes to have influence abroad and that we're sort of coasting on on the past and perhaps, you know, the size of our economy and our UN Security Council seat, but not doing the kind of things, investing in that sort of on-the-ground expertise um, that you talk about, you know, that if you, if you don't have people who understand these countries, you're going to make terrible decisions. So have we just given up? Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think you're so right there. And one of the things I saw when I was a diplomat, um, and obviously I had lots of friends in other countries' diplomatic services, it's often a bit easier if you're British. One, because because of our history and our language, everybody kind of knows what your country is. Everyone knows a few things about Britain in a way that perhaps if you represent a smaller Northern European country, you might have to work a bit harder to sort of articulate what your country is. So I think in in one sense, we, we've become very complacent and we have sort of given up. We've kind of assumed that we'll somehow be in a leadership role just because we're Britain. And we saw this so much with Brexit. I remember seeing things where um, there were there were, there were were pro-Brexit uh, politicians talking about how Britain, once we'd left the EU, would take a leadership role in the World Trade Organization. And it's just madness. You know, we, we haven't been as an individual bilateral member in the WTO because of our EU membership since its foundation. And yet we just sort of had this weird assumption that, that we would skip in and, and suddenly become a, a leading player in the WTO. And, and I think it ultimately, we, we yeah, it's sort of doing the hard yards. It's investing in, in these international organizations. It's actually having a bigger diplomatic service. I mean, it's at a time of, of general sort of austerity and, 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 you know, budget challenges, it's quite hard to advocate for diplomats that look privileged. I, I don't mean literally physically, but, you know, in, in the way they lead their lives. But actually, diplomats are incredibly cheap. You know, you compare them to the cost of having a war, it's zilch. Um, so, you know, and, and we have a smaller diplomatic service than France, than Italy, than Germany. So we've already decided yeah. that somehow we, we don't need to do these things and we can just sort of rumble along and, and because we're British, people will come to us. And I think, obviously, you know, that that over a medium and longer term, we'll, we, we will see the cost of that. Thanks, Arthur. Before we go, let's take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Um, Hannah. So I don't want to bring uh, the mood down, but I think I want to raise um, awareness of a story that I came across today that I had no idea. And it's, it's really very important. Another story that's been buried by the fact that, you know, we're going through a heat wave and so on. And there's a lot more kind of populist content out there. The BBC has broken a story uh, in the last 24 hours that children in care are being illegally placed in unregulated homes across England. And these homes can include things like narrow boats and caravans. They found a 12 year old boy who was placed at a campsite for weeks um, more than 100 miles from his siblings and his school. Um, and these place, these kind of placements are absolutely illegal. They're banned for under-16s, but there's some sort of loophole in the law that means that you can get around it during school holidays because of the pressure on care places. Um, they found at least 120 children across the country, including one aged 10 in these kind of homes. What kind of failure is it of our social care system that this requires a BBC News investigation to uncover it for a start? that this is not something that is absolutely on the top, uh, at the top of the agenda of anybody working in social care. I found it heartbreaking, but I, I, also it's something we should, we should all be talking about. Well, one of the unspoken things I thought in the Tory leadership contest was they were just talking about sort of, you know, 
tax cuts and therefore other cuts in, in services. And what they didn't talk about, perhaps because then that would make people go, mm, I wonder who's been in charge for the last 12 years, is this sense that things are falling to bits, you know, in care. Even my attitude to sort of something, I was like, I had something recently, I was like, should I go to A&E? And I was like, oh, well, there's no point. You know what I mean? And this general sense of decay and that these stories just yeah. show these massive failures. And the government isn't talking about that. And they're actually just going, what if we put less money in? <laughs> Alex? Um, so a really weird story that I think is quite concerning or could be quite concerning. So the UK hosted the uh, 2022 International Ministerial Conference on Freedom of Religion or Belief. And they then put out a joint statement um, signed by 22 of the countries that talked about safeguarding women's rights at the same time as freedom of religion and everything, and specifically mentioned sexual and reproductive health and rights, bodily autonomy, stuff like that. The statement disappeared mysteriously off the Foreign and Commonwealth Office website about 10 days ago, um, around about the time when the debate was raging in the States about this issue, and then reappeared three days ago with all the references to reproductive health and abortion rights removed. And this, the new version of the statement <coughs> is now signed by only six countries that participated in the conference rather than the 22 that are signed. Mm. So weaker statement with fewer signatories. Um, Humanists UK who alerted the press to this are trying to find out what happened and not getting any answers from the FCDO. Um, well, hopefully they will get to the bottom of that. I hope so. Um, Arthur? Yeah, so mine is, in some respects, it's not very under the radar because it's about Ukrainian refugees, but I think it's an aspect now that we're basically coming up to six months of, of this conflict um, that it's starting to rear its head. And, and this is the question of, at the beginning of the, the, the war, for all the understandable reasons, people all over the world were opening their arms and their homes and their countries to Ukrainians. Uh, Poland took, I think, nearly 5 million. Britain, a much smaller number. Uh, but there's evidence now that this consensus is starting to break down. And right. for example, the, the Homes of Ukrainians program here is a six-month program. At the end of that, the government never really had a plan for what's going to happen after that. In Poland, there's been reports of all kinds of uh, increasing tensions. So I think it's the the challenge we're we're seeing is something that was a crisis that we all felt we could get through just for a, for a few weeks. So something that's going to become part of the norm in Europe, which is this war rumbling on in Ukraine. And what does that mean for all of our societies? And I feel that that's something that is under the radar and hasn't really been thought about very clearly. Uh, and finally, I'm going to offer a, rare, a cultural recommendation. Um, it's one of those things that, that, that chimes with so much that we've been talking about and so much I've been reading about. Uh, Peter Morgan's new play, uh, Patriots at the Almeida, that I saw. And I think I th the thing might be quite hard to get tickets. I imagine it will transfer. Um, and it's a very clever telling of basically the last 25 years odd of um, Russian history. Uh, it's got Tom Hollander as Boris Beresovsky. Uh, it's also got uh, Putin, Alexander Litvinenko, Robin Abramovich as this rather sort of glib, posh apprentice candidate kind of guy. Um, and it's an amazing work. Peter Morgan is obviously um, the guy behind the crown, Frost mm -hmm. Nixon, the queen and so on. Uh, and it's a very deft 
tight bit of storytelling. He's got an he's got an angle. These are sort of characters that that come alive. His version of Putin is is sort of fascinating and chilling. And it's one of those things that I hope does transfer. I hope more people get to see it. I also, you know, I hope it's one of those things where, where it gets, you know, gets filmed and people have an opportunity who can't get to the, the theatre in London um, to see it for themselves. Because I think it's it's a genuinely exciting bit of drama about something that we're obviously thinking about a hell of a lot more. And it was something he must have started writing before the invasion of Ukraine, or at least before this invasion of Ukraine. And that's the show. Thank you to Alex. Thank you. Arthur. Thank you. And our guest, Hannah Fern. Thank you. If you're listening as a Patreon, Arthur's book, How Britain Broke the World, is out today, Thursday, July 21st. To everyone else, it was uh, out yesterday. (laughs) And on the Patreon front, we're working through a huge backlog of backers for name checks. If you haven't heard your shout yet, don't worry, we will get round to you, but it might take a while. So here's a salute to some more of our generous and patient supporters, accompanied by our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop. Hello, and thank you from me to Alison Bainbridge, Caroline Bloor, Lisa Osborne, Ned Brown, Drew Kerr, Rebecca Bergheimer, Chris Hind, Penny Creed, Mark Williams, and just John. And huge thanks on behalf of the whole extended Podmasters universe from me to Angela Smith, Quentin Neal, Lloyd, Matthew Gregory, Tom Redpath, and this one I'm very excited about, Chris Packham. Maybe it's a different Chris Packham. PJ. We hope it's not. Susan Fraser, Jill Whiteford, and Kian Harrington. And thanks for me to Hilary McMullen, Mark, Gus Holdgate, Nick, John Scott, Tim Roughsedge, Alex Angas, Kate Greer, Scuba Al, and Jenny Pratt. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu, Arthur Snell and Hannah Fern. The producers are Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofronevich and assistant producer is Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison and audio production is by me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Tuesday saw the hottest temperature ever recorded in the UK, with Heathrow Airport reaching 40.2 degrees. Tarmac melted, rail tracks buckled, wildfires broke out in Suffolk, and more fire engines were needed in London than at any time since the Blitz. Still, it's called summer, isn't it? Calm down, have a Solero. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hannah, what has been the uh, what has been the dumbest reaction you have seen in uh, so it's, to the heat in media, social media? Oh, it's not the dumbest. It's my favourite. It's the most <laughs> British reaction. That a man was swimming the breaststroke through the fountain in the centre of Birmingham. It's an absolute brilliant <laughs> piece of video. I urge you to go and watch it. Uh, what a moment! Just get in, have a swim. Walk out as, as if he'd been doing the butterfly. It was, it was about four inches okay. of water wow. and managed to do That was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now, every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly mini cast, oh God, what else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and see you next week.